please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Timothy. Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter one. Beginning in verse eight. We'll read through the end of verse 10. Before I read, just to say that uh, Pastor Rob has been uh, preaching through the book of Revelation. Whenever I get the opportunity to preach in the mornings, I'm very hesitant to uh, interrupt or try to take the next verses in the book that he's preaching on. So I picked a text that I've been thinking about for, oh, some months now, that I think is one that just beautifully expresses in a very short span of words the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to unpack it with you this morning. So we begin with 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So ends the reading. God's holy word. When Paul wrote these words, he was sitting in prison. And uh, his active traveling had come to uh, a halt. And he knew that he was coming to the end of his life. And as he was considering the needs of Timothy, his fellow soldier and fellow minister in the gospel, he exhorts Timothy not to be afraid to share with him in those sufferings. We also need to hear those words. Let's join together in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask that as we consider these few words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to his fellow pastor, Timothy, all those many years ago, may it be, O Lord, that we hear them afresh as being spoken to us as well, and that you would impress them upon our minds and hearts this morning. We ask this, and for your aid, for your assistance, for your grace, even in this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is in prison and he is, says to Timothy, 
Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The Emperor Nero had recently come into power and was, had begun a, a campaign of the persecution of Christians, and the Apostle Paul had gotten caught in that net and was being held in prison. All of the Christians who lived throughout the Roman Empire were faced then with the question as to how they were to conduct themselves. How would they live in a culture and with uh, an emperor that was hostile to them as Christians? The temptation would be to be silent and to go dark. Paul says, do the opposite. Go bright. Go strong. Don't be afraid to share in the sufferings, the sufferings for the gospel. So all of us are called to a life not of fear, but of power and of courage and trust in the God who is almighty and all-powerful and loved and cared for the Apostle Paul as he was in prison. While Timothy was yet free, love and care for Timothy and all the other compatriots that helped in the dissemination of the gospel. As Paul considers this, of course, he knows that uh, death is a very real possibility. In fact, in this letter, he says that he believes that, he says, I have run the race. I have finished my course. And so death then, uh, and that final sacrifice for Christ uh, lies as a very real possibility for the Apostle Paul and for Timothy and for all believers who lived in a hostile environment at that time. So in this verse, he continue, in these verses, he continues on. And he says, share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God. And so he directs Timothy to consider the greatness of God and his great power and what God has done for us in saving us from our sins. And so he says in these verses, he says he has the power of God. By the power of God, he has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So I want to call to your attention the fact that at the very end of verse 9, he says all of these things that he gave to us were given to us before the ages began. When is that? Before creation. Before he said, let there be, and there was before time was spun out into the universe with the passage of the movement of that which he made. And so it was then that salvation very much was 
in the decree and the purpose and the counsel of God when God alone was prior to his having acted to create anything. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in triune glory, in absolute uh, splendor, and rejoicing in the glory that was his before the world that we know was in existence. Yet, all of this that God has done to save us, Paul says to Timothy, was done prior to this creation. So I want to sort of break this down uh, into four headings. And this is sort of the path that I'm going to follow. First of all, he saved us. Secondly, he says, he called us to a holy calling. Thirdly, he tells us the reason that he did it. And fourth, he tells us who it was that is the surety that would bring this about. A surety is someone who makes something sure, someone who guarantees something. If you go to the bank and you want to take a loan, a lot of times you need someone to stand behind you to guarantee that loan. A surety, someone to represent, someone to guarantee. And Jesus Christ, the mediator, is often referred to, especially uh, in, by theologians, as our surety, as the mediator, as the one who is the guarantor. So those four things. He saved us. He called us. The reason he did so, and the one by whom he did it, the surety. And so, first of all, let's consider the fact that here the Apostle Paul tells us that God in his great power has saved us. What does that mean? Well, if you're saved, you're saved from something. And that which God saved us from is eternal death. Eternal death. He saved us from being cut off from him forever. He saved us from hell. From suffering in hell for all eternity. Remember that mankind fell in Adam. He fell in Adam as Adam sinned and broke God's commandment. The Bible tells us that as sin came into the world through that one man, Adam, and then death spread and spread to all men because of that. And we also follow in Adam's footprint. We also sin, but we were uh, in Adam as our representative, and when he sinned against God, we also sinned in him. And the wages of sin is death. And death is defined, we think of it, temporal death as a separation of the soul from the body. But eternal death is the eternal separation of soul and body from God's loving presence. And so when he says to Timothy that he saved us, that is what he's referring to. He saved us from sin and death. 
the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. What does it mean for God to save us before we existed? Well, Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 1 that he chose us. He chose us even as we were included in the mass of fallen and sinful humanity. God set his love on certain ones whom he chose. Ephesians 1, 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There he says the same thing. We are talking about the purpose of God prior to creation. He chose us before we existed, before we had come into being. He saved us then, I believe, refers to God's electing love. He chose us before the ages began. But the second thing that we see is that he called us. He says he saved us and called us to a holy calling. What does it mean that God should call us? Well, it's one thing for God to purpose to save his children. It's another thing for him to set in motion a plan by which they would come out of death and into fellowship with himself. And to be called by God is that he called us to himself, to fellowship and communion with himself. How does he do that? He does it through the gospel. He does it through God's word. And when we hear the gospel when we hear about Jesus and what God has done for us in Christ, and we confess that we are sinners, and that we are deserving of God's just displeasure, and when he convicts us of our our sin by the work of his Holy Spirit, he enables us to know something about who Jesus is and why he came, and to put our trust in him. And so he calls us by the message of the gospel. The gospel, or the word of the gospel, is his instrument of calling. And that's why it's so important that we know the gospel. It's so important that we know uh, how to verbally express that gospel as it is taught to us in Scripture. He tells the Ephesians, In him also when you heard the word of truth. Now what is that, the word of truth? He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, When you heard with your ears the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There it is. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. God comes to you with that word of truth and he calls you to himself. That's calling. Not only does he call you externally, but he calls you internally. It's not merely a hearing with the ears, but it's a hearing with the heart, where he enables us and quickens us so that we respond to that which we hear, where we have a sense of our great need, and we have a sense of 
that God is indeed speaking to me right now, and that God is calling me right now to faith in Jesus Christ. It is a calling. It is an effectual calling. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. It is not only an external call, it's not only a call to our hearts and to our affections and our wills, enabling us, the shorter catechism puts it this way, it convinces us of our sin and misery, it enlightens our minds to know, to the knowledge of Christ, and it renews our wills. And he persuades us and enables us to embrace Christ Jesus. That's that effectual heart calling. And it happens to each one of us in a different way. The, our, our experiences in life and all of the things that, that uh, are a part of, the, of our individual story, how it is that he brings us into contact with this word of truth, the gospel, how it is that he, go, he enables us inwardly to feel it and to know it, and to trust in Christ is unique and different for every single person. But he does just that in every single one whom he calls. John Calvin puts it this way, and I, I think it's an interesting also way of thinking about the calling. We're talking about the renewing of, in the mind and the will and, and responding in faith to the call of the gospel. Calvin says, he inserts us into his body. He inserts us into his body. So it is not only an individual thing. It's not only that he inserts us into himself, into Christ, but he inserts us into Christ's body. And that body is Christ himself and all others who are connected with Christ himself, and we are made one with Christ and everyone who belongs to Christ. And that is a fact. That is a fact. You are united to Christ. And in your union with Christ, you are united to the body of Christ. And so this uh, calling, it comes to us in history. But remember, we're talking prehistory. All of this was purposed by God and planned by God before the world existed. That's what this passage tells us. But what is that calling? It is a heavenly calling. And it is a calling to fellowship and communion with God for all eternity. There is the life that each one of us is destined to spend from the year of our birth to the year of our death and all of the moments in between and all the ways in which we spend those moments. But ultimately, God's purpose is to call us to an adoption as his sons. In fact, uh, in Ephesians 1, that's what he says. He predestines us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And that adoption as sons is an expression of being in such a relationship with God that... He delights to be our Father, and that He delights to bestow blessing upon blessing upon us. And that He no longer looks at us as those who are alienated from Him and far removed, 
but he brought us near in Christ to himself. And it is a wonderful family expression, this adoption. And this adoption is something that in God's purpose for us in our historical life and our lifespan, we experience something of the love of God the Father to us in Christ, our adoption as sons. In Romans chapter 8, we read about this, where Paul says that we groan, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons. And then he calls that adoption the redemption of our bodies. That's an interesting idea. God, in our historical life, in, in our mortal flesh, in our mortal life, adopts us as his sons and daughters. But he's called us to immortality and the resurrection of the body. And it is in the resurrection of the body that our adoption comes to its completion. Just as was prayed earlier by Elder Ron, that at that time when our when we are with Christ for eternity, when we are without sin, when God has purified you from every, every corrupt uh, thing that attaches to your heart in this mortal flesh, when all of that is gone, and you exist before God in a resurrected and glorified body, that is adoption in its fullest sense. That is the moment in which God will bring you into his presence as glorified in soul and body, sinless in soul and body, and you will be his forever and ever. That is the heavenly calling. That is the calling to which God calls you. What an amazing thing. And Paul wants Timothy to know this because he wants this to weigh so deeply into his soul that he's willing to sacrifice everything of time and sense that is attached to this mortal life for the sake of that heavenly calling. And it's only if we know something of the glory of God, something of the glory of the calling to which he has called us in Christ that everything else takes its proper place. And it takes its proper place as far, far less in importance. Your life, he says, is hidden with Christ in God. Your true life. So when it comes to testifying boldly and living strongly for Jesus Christ in your life, Remember where your true life is. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of somebody frowning at you. Don't be afraid that somebody might mock you. Somebody might laugh at you. Somebody, that happened every time Paul preached. We just read of his preaching in Athens. He says when he got to the point of the resurrection, some mocked. I'm sure that didn't feel very good. If you've ever been laughed at... You know that doesn't feel good if it's a serious event. Um, uh, kids, kids are cruel. Teenagers are cruel to each other that way sometimes. And when you're young, you have that experience of you do something or say something that's silly and somebody laughs at you. Don't be afraid, Paul says. Consider the greatness of your heavenly calling, considering what God has done for you. What is man? 
What is man's approval in the light of that? And that's what he's trying to impress upon Timothy and I think upon all of us as well. So what is the reason that God has called us to this heavenly calling? Is it because you are who you are and you've been made in a certain way and, 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 and you're a little bit better? Is it because you have something about you? That there's something in you, something your response, something that you've done? No. Paul says, he says, he's called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. But because of his own purpose and grace. What is the reason? Why would he do that? Why would he save us from death and from hell? Why would he call us to union with himself? Not because of anything in you, not because of anything in me, but because of his own purpose and grace, that is the reason. Basically, that means there's no reason that anyone can explain to you other than God's counsel and his purpose. It is the free and immutable will of God to do so, and that is it. Everything comes to pass for that reason, his own purpose and grace. And so we see then that it is rooted in God's divine purpose, that he would give salvation to a people, and that he would give them to Christ. And so then, as we continue with this, we see then that the time in which it was done, it was done in all eternity. But it was manifested, and it would be manifested in history. John Calvin puts it this way. He gave it to people who were not yet born, quite apart from any consideration of merit. And he kept it stored away among his treasures till the time came when he would make it clear by the result that he determines nothing in vain. And so Paul exhorts Timothy, don't be discouraged, bear witness. Bear witness with confidence. And so we look next to see the one who is the surety. He gave all of this to us in Christ Jesus. He gave it to us in Christ Jesus, he says. And it's very interesting the way he speaks about him. He says, he gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so it was given to us in Christ Jesus before. And he looked upon Christ before, not merely in his eternal nature as the second person of the Godhead, one with the Father in essence, but also he looked at the Son as incarnate before he was incarnate. He looked at the Son as the one who would be the Savior of a people before he became, in history, 
the Savior of a people. He gave, him, he gave us salvation in Christ before the ages began. And so it is that our salvation surety is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he existed prior. That is the message of the gospel. That the Son of God became man. He pre-existed history. It was given to us before the ages began. Proverbs chapter 8 tells us about wisdom. The Lord possessed me, it says, wisdom personified. And we interpret this as being the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. And this is Proverbs 8, verses 22 and following. He possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old, ages ago, from everlasting. I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Delighting in the children of men before they were the children of men. Delighting in them as God planned to make them in the ages to follow. And so the Lord Jesus uh, is the one who, in whom all the counsels for our salvation took place. He was set up. He was made to be the mediator before the ages began. His being set up, there was uh, the glory that Jesus had from everlasting with the Father. John Owen puts it this way, there is none other than the special exaltation which he had when he was set up from the beginning. These are the eternal transactions between the Father and the Son in his eternal counsels with respect to the church, the salvation of men. The Lord possessed and enjoyed the Son as his eternal wisdom for the salvation of mankind. And he continues to say this, we conceive not aright the counsels of God when we think of nothing but the effects of them. The principal delight of God is his eternal counsels. His works are the effects of those counsels from which those works proceed. So what we're saying here is that the Son was established in the presence of the Father as the one who would be the surety the mediator for his people, and every blessing that they would receive would be in and through the working of his son. And we read about that in his appearing, because he says, he has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior. When the time had fully come, when in the counsel of God the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. At that moment, the eternal Son of God took upon himself our flesh. He was born of a woman, born under the law to save those who were under the condemnation of that law. The eternal was made in time. John Owen puts it this way, the eternal was made in time. The infinite became finite. 
the immortal mortal, and yet continuing, eternal, infinite, and immortal. You get that? The eternal was made in time. The infinite became finite. The immortal, mortal, and yet continuing, eternal, infinite, and immortal. This is that wherein God will be admired and glorified unto all eternity. If you have a hard time wrapping your mind around that, so does everyone else. And that is why it is that we will admire and glorify God for all eternity for that one great fact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Not ceasing to be what he was, but becoming what he was not in taking our nature to his own, to be his own, the glorious word was made flesh, which expresses that word flesh, expresses the lowest state in the condition of human nature. And Owen says this, and, I, and it, he's expressing his own wonder at it, and I can't help but just uh, resound with it. What heart can conceive, what tongue can express, the least part of the glory of this divine wisdom and grace. What heart can conceive, what tongue can express, the least part of this glory of the divine wisdom and grace, that in his human nature he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found as a servant, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And so it is that he took our sins upon him. So it is that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And why did he do that? He did that so that he might abolish death. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to life. Did you know that death was abolished? You know, we, we uh, went through a pandemic and there were lines and lines and lines of people waiting to get a shot to protect them from COVID-19. Death that has affected every single person born son of Adam has reigned over all of us. But did you know that Jesus came to abolish death? It is absolutely true. He who believes in me will never die, he says. Your communion and fellowship with God will never be interrupted. You will lay your body down one day but your fellowship with God will not be interrupted. That's how secure, and that's how amazing salvation is. It means that for you, death is abolished. And if you would think that there would be lines of people outside this church today, if they knew that God had provided a means for sinners to be reconciled to himself and not to die. Wouldn't that be the case? I mean, think about it. 
Why is it that that is not the case? He has abolished death, and uh, he has destroyed it. As the writer of Hebrews says, through death he might destroy, through his own death, that he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set all those legal demands aside, nailing them to the cross. As the poet John Donne says, death be not proud. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For thou art not so. He ends that poem by saying, One short sleep past, and we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Jesus Christ came to abolish death, and he brought life and immortality to life. So abolishing death is one side of the coin. Bringing light and immortality is, is the uh, life and immortality is the other. What is life and immortality? But that final state that we spoke of earlier, being in the presence of God for all eternity, with a sanctified and holy body and a sanctified and holy soul, resurrected and glorified in the presence of God, that is life and immortality. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is the gospel that is the means by which all of this is brought about. I tell you this, Paul says, flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Put on immortality. Paul speaks to the Corinthians about we have a house in the heavens, a house that God has made. It is that eternal, that eternal body that he has for us. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are still in this tent. We are still burdened. We long to be further clothed. We long to be swallowed up by life and immortality. That's what lies ahead for you. To be swallowed up in, those, in that great life that God has for all of his children. And he's guaranteed it by the surety. Because he has been raised we also will be raised. And he's also guaranteed it by the Holy Spirit that he's given to us as the down payment and the promise of that which is to come. It is a partial installment of that which is whole and which lies ahead. And that is the gospel.
That is the wonder of the gospel. It is the abolishment of death, and it is the an announcement of life and immortality. So in the, midst, in the midst of a life in which we're called to bear witness without fear, we recognize the greatness of God, the power of God, what he has done in Jesus Christ, what he has planned before time began and what became manifest in the incarnation in the life of Christ and in his resurrection. It was all a part of God's mighty plan of salvation. Thank God for that. As a congregation, we came uh, very close to losing uh, someone very dear to us all, Brad Sprecher. And we thank God for the, his mighty power in, in bringing him back to his family and back to us. And that life that God has called Brad and has called us all to live is a life in which we are given, we are given a span of time how will we live it? Will we live it in fear? Or will we live it with courage, boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ and the knowledge of the gospel and the way to life and immortality? May God give us grace that we would do that. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that this message of the gospel expressed so beautifully in these verses that Paul wrote to Timothy, would remain with us. That you would fill us with the knowledge, the knowledge of Christ, and the knowledge of his glory, and all that you have planned for us, even from all eternity. And Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us each one courage to live for you in this fallen and sinful world. Enable us to be lights calling men and women to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this.